We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians to be encouraged in how we can live in wisdom and in congruence with our calling as the children of God, united to Jesus and, uh, and his goodness. Our text for today comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Before I read this, you notice that the very first word is therefore, and uh, so it's always good to have context for what the therefore is there for. So here's the 60-second catch-up, and we looked at this last week, but so that we can just have a frame of reference for what we're about to read. Um, the Apostle Paul is mesmerized by the goodness of Jesus. He's writing this from prison. He's in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. It's a military town, and they have a constant reminder of who's in charge, naturally speaking, because there's military everywhere in their, in their city. And the Apostle Paul is encouraging his church to remember who is actually truly in control and truly in charge, and it is not Rome, but is in fact the creator of all things. And the Apostle Paul says, if there's any comfort in Christ, and he uses the word, the Greek word parakaleo, if there is any strength and bravery that comes from being united to Jesus, and he's not actually asking, he's declaring it, and he says, may we have the same mind that's in Christ, and we are given a picture into the mind of Christ, and he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so in the verses leading up to this, as he's expounding on how Christ the King, who was equal with God and deity as God, took on humanity, was willing to humble himself in the form of a servant, and he goes to the cross, and through his uh, absolute uh, gracious uh, death and divine resurrection, uh, Paul is blown away by the reality that this physical life that we have is not all there is. The physical challenges that we deal with, whether they're economical or political or even physical in our own bodies, that this life is not all there is. And he's so gripped by this, he's calling the church to live with a sense of joy and congruence that really just transcends their understanding. And so there's this Christ hymn, which is literally right before these verses we're about to read, And that hymn about Christ, scholars say it's either a hymn or it was a a creed that was declared about the divinity of Jesus, worshipping Jesus as God. Uh, That's informing what he's about to say here. That it's not, those verses aren't just given for us to say, oh wow, that's really interesting and theological. But we're, we're given the insight into the mind of Christ so that it can inform the way in we live, which is going to result in tremendous freedom and joy. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is God's word. This morning I want us to um, break this text down by thinking about uh, three things. The first one being the promise, the second one being the power, and the third thing being the pathway. In these verses, we see that there's a promise, there's power, and then there's a pathway. And uh, let's start with the promise. Verse 12, work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. 
Um, salvation is a gift. It's a promise. So what's with this really shocking phrase, fear and trembling? We don't want to dismiss it. It's, it's important. It's critical. It's sobering. But what does it mean? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody makes a, a commitment to you. They're very excited about it. And then as time goes on, they reevaluate and they back out of that commitment. You spend months trying to negotiate a partnership between your business and another business. And everybody's really excited at the beginning. And then more details kind of get unveiled. And next thing you know, the whole thing dissolves. Hey, we're going to go on this great you know, vacation and we're going to go as friends and we're going to rent a cottage. It's going to be awesome. And then we start to look at the cost and we start to look at a thing and we look at our schedules and it never happens. Is that what's going on here? I mean, is Paul really, really excited about the scandalous grace of Christ at the beginning of Philippians? And he talks about Christ him and he unpacks the divinity of Jesus and how he added to his divinity our humanity and we're, see- we're given the, the form of God and the form of man. Form in the Greek being the morphe, the, the core identities, the core realities of who God is. And is he just get all excited about that and then he goes, oh. Actually, I'm not sure if salvation is a gift, if it's this salvation is a promise. You better work it out with, you better be freaked out every day of your life, Christian, with fear and trembling. Is that what's going on here? That is not uh, what's going on at all. So let's unpack this and consider what's going on here. If you've ever had the misfortune of working for a insecure leader. Leaders who are insecure will maintain their sense of power and superiority by creating a culture of fear and trembling. Because if you are working for a place where everybody's sort of fear and trembling, then you're always trying to perform to stay on the leader's good side. You're always trying to make sure that the the worth that you are producing is such that you garner their acceptance. Well, our God is not an insecure God. Our God is not trying to create a culture in his church of phobia. We're just afraid and we're never really sure where we stand with God. Now, if you are not united to Christ, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, and this fear and trembling may mean something completely different for you, because the fact of the matter is that uh, you and I are both made of dirt, and we're not here long, cosmically speaking, you know, In comparison to the cosmos, we're only here for 80 or 90 years, and that's kind of like the blink of an eye. So perhaps if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection implying that death is not final, then perhaps the way that you ought to be relating to to God is with the fear and trembling that is like very sobering. Who is this Jesus? Is he just a nice ancient hippie, or is he who he claimed to be, the Son of God? And ought ought I to bend my knee to him. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Paul's not inviting the church into constant worry. He's calling us to obedience from constant wonder. He's expecting the same wonder that is invigorating him in that Roman prison is going to reanimate and invigorate all of us. Our God is not an insecure deity trying to get all of us to sort of clamor after his acceptance at all. Um, The context here is not this phobia, it's this tremendous reverence, it's tremendous awe. To work it out with fear and trembling. We can understand that, Greek scholars tell us, this fear and trembling, not as a phobia, but like this trembling of excitement, this incredible anticipation, this uh, 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 sense of energetic perseverance, excited 
compassionate conscientiousness. When you tell your child or a child, if you don't have children, and you've got nephews or friends or neighbors, and it's their birthday, and you get them a gift, that gift is a promise. It's done. You paid for it. It's theirs. They're not earning this. And then when you say, hey, um, tomorrow I'm going to come by your house. Happy birthday. I have a gift for you. And you bring that gift and you give it to that child. Sometimes small children, when they're receiving a gift, you see there's trembling. Their fingers are moving. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of conscientious, you know, sort of energy. And that's what this is here. This, Paul is absolutely blown away by Jesus. And he wants to make every effort to work out the implications of being united to Jesus. And he wants that to look like boldness and obedience. He wants that to look like love and care. He wants to resemble the one who saved him in grace. And that's what he's inviting Philippi into. That's what he's calling us into. And it's sobering. He's saying, we've got to work this thing out. It's, it's a promise that's, that's, that ought to be worked out with tremendous joy and uh, a tremendous sense of, of uh, effort and intention. You know, years ago, I was given a gift by a number of my friends and family. They knew that I absolutely loved cars. I loved performance driving. They paid for me to go to the Shannonville Speedway and go to racing school and get my um, performance driving certificate. It was paid for. The car, I didn't even have a car at the time. We had, our family drove a Jeep. I didn't even have a vehicle for the track. A friend of mine gave me his car to use. I showed up. Everything was paid for. And I went in the class and they gave us some instruction. They said, here's what you got to do. And they said, okay, let's go out and do it. And I got in that car and an instructor got in the car next to me. And then I had to go out on the track and work out the gift with fear and trembling. Both kinds. I had to work out the implications of what I was given. No earning, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go around a corner. I don't know if you knew that. And the faster you go, the more obvious the, the error becomes. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And the Apostle Paul, as he's calling the church into obedience, calling them to humble themselves, to really walk out a transformed life under the wise guidance of God's word in prayer and meditation, using the means of grace given, he's, there's, a, there's a promise that's settled, and then he's calling us to walk this out with just a tremendous sense of intensity. Work it out with this passionate, energetic perseverance. So let's move from the promise to the power. I mean, how do we do it? In the same way that I didn't go into the school and they said, okay, here's the physics of the car, here's what's happening under acceleration, here's what's happening under braking. Why don't you uh, guys who've never done this before just go out and get in those cars and uh, drive around as fast as you can. Let's just see how this works. I mean, it would have been bumper cars. The, the instructors got in the vehicles with us. They had been around the track a million times. They knew every inch of every corner. They knew where to be and where not to be, what to do and what not to do. And the whole time I was driving, that instructor was talking. That instructor did not stop talking. From the, the call to work out this gift, look at what it says. God is working in you to will and to do what is His good pleasure. So notice two things. There's divine initiative, and the divine initiative is calling for human response. See, the way that God transforms his church, his children, is not through magic. It's not like, oh, we came to saving faith in Christ. The end, 
Uh, suppose that over time the Spirit will transform me? No, no. The divine initiative, God has done this by grace alone, and he's calling for human response, and he's calling us to exert a lot of effort and energy in order to work out with great excitement, fear and trembling, the, the, the result of uh, this gift called salvation. And he's calling us, and, and you know, in calling us to do this, for God to work in us, um, it requires humility. It requires us to be teachable. It requires a willingness to be corrected, to repent. It requires energy. He's inviting us into all of these things um, because, of course, God has given means of grace for that work to happen. The wisdom of his word as you are uh, meditating and reading the scriptures in your homes, as you are going to God in prayer. We come together corporately, we read, we study the scripture, the scriptures declared, we confess corporately. But day to day, these, this beautiful gift of grace, these beautiful means of grace of being in the presence of God in your home, through, through worship and the word and through prayer, these are the means of God's grace that he uses so that he works in us. But it, the good news is that it is God that does the work. And we're invited into this participation. Just to be very clear, for those of you who are new to the scriptures or new to Christian faith, we have no participation in saving ourselves. The theological word for that is justification. We have no participation in that. That is Christ and Christ alone. He saves us definitively by his perfection apart from our progress. We don't have a participation in that. What we do have a participation in, which is this text, in many texts in the New Testament, is the sanctification that is done by God's power, by the Spirit, but through the means of grace that we have to partner with. I don't know if you have ever, um, whether you've, through babysitting, or you have children of your own, or visiting a friend's house and taking care of their kids, I don't know if you've ever tried to change a toddler that doesn't want to be changed. Like if you tried to put pants and shirt on a kid that doesn't want to be changed, and they go stiff as a board, and it's like trying to dress a two-by-four, it's like, this is, this is, they're not cooperating. And you know, when you and I get into pride, which is the OG sin from Genesis 3, the pride that says, I don't need God, I'll be God. I don't want a God to, through his word, contradict uh, the view that I have of ethics and how I ought to live my life. I don't want God to come in and interrupt that. Right? Whether it be... Uh, Contradicting my views on, uh, as Andrew was encouraging during the receiving of the offering message, uh, that I earned everything that I have and therefore it's mine, versus, well, this is a gift of God and I ought to see myself as a steward and live a very generous life, whether it's financially or live with generosity through my time, whether it's the reformation of my ideas around the poor and the refugee, and not just sit back and say, well, I worked hard for what I got and perhaps they should work hard for what they got, and that's the end of the conversation. When God's word comes in and confronts our ideas, well, here's what our culture says we ought to adopt as, uh, uh, as a sexual ethics. So I suppose I don't want to deal with any sort of controversy there, so I'm just going to amalgamate with how the culture sees that. Versus, well, God's word guides and directs me to understand sexual ethics uh, as per his word, you know, this beautiful gift kept within the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. But I want to operate with grace and give dignity to everybody who does not adhere to this. But yet, though this governs my life, even perhaps my own sexual appetites, 
So if I don't want anything to do with anything that God's word may say to contradict how I want to live, I'm going to be like a toddler that doesn't want to be changed, stiff as a board. And you see that God does not transform us through magic. It's God who works in us. He works, he does the work, but, he, but we are called into this place of, of humility and willingness to be lovingly redressed by the Father. There's things we've got to put off, there's things we've got to put on. Imagine a loving father who buys tickets for their child to go this Christmas to see a play, and the child is very excited, and the father says to the child, okay, listen, I know you're very excited about going to Toronto and going to this big theater. We're going to go to the Mervish Theater. We're going to watch this big Christmas presentation. It's going to get you in the mood for Christmas. I know you're excited, but listen, I've got to tell you something. You can't wear your bathing suit to the theater. I know you love to wear it every day running around the house, but this is how you... You've got to take that off. You've got to put this on. You've got to dress this way. And I need you to do that. Now, I bought the tickets. You can't buy the tickets. I'm the one that's going to drive you there. You can't get yourself there. I'm going to make sure, as your loving father, I'm going to make sure you get there. But listen, you've got to get changed. And by the way, when you get there, there's also an appropriate way that you've got to behave. It's not McDonald's Playland. So when the, when the production starts, this is how... And so that, that father who's already secured the gift is going to bring all sorts of loving instruction to navigate how that child walks into the newness of an experience that they've never had. This is the idea behind this loving father who's made a promise and he's supplied the power to guide us on this pathway so that we can work out the gift of our salvation with fear and trembling, this excited, passionate, energetic perseverance that we want to desperately resemble Jesus because like Paul... We're truly, uh, we're, we're truly astounded and, and encouraged and mesmerized by Jesus. And so the text says, it is God who wills to work in you. And that word work there, God who works in you, um, that's in the Greek, it is uh, energion. And energion sounds like energy because that's what it is. It says it's God who energizes you. It's God who energions you. It's God who, basically it's saying, his transformative grace is effective. What God is up to in your life and mine is effective. He is able, when you look in the mirror and say, I know I'm being called to, you know, selfish, away from selfishness and into generosity, but I look in the mirror and this is a disappointing area in my life. Or pick an area of your life where standing next to Jesus, you're like, I just don't resemble him. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's tenderness. You can go through the fruit of the Spirit and say, here's, you know, love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, we can find areas in our life where we go, I don't resemble the way I wish I did, but do not be discouraged, church, because God energions in you. He works. He's effective. So he calls us into this humble, humble place of reliance on him as he does this work. So let's move from the promise and the power to the pathway. What does this end up looking like on the ground? It looks like a lot of things, but immediately, in this immediate context, the Apostle Paul identifies a problem in the church, historically, and in Philippi. And he says, you know, for God to do this work in us, one of the things that he just immediately goes to is he says, don't live your life with, with uh, grumbling and disputing. Some of the translations say grumbling and complaining. Well, why does he go here? What's he applying uh, you know, it's not just, you know, a TED talk from prison 
hey, let's just exude some positive vibes. Uh, let's not grumble and complain. You know, let's be fun to be around. There's, there's a real depth here of what he's, he's actually calling that church to, and by extension, this church. You know, grumbling um, could also be translated, you know, ongoing displeasure. Just ongoing chronic displeasure. And uh, you remember that the children of Israel were grumbling all through the wilderness. So, you know, Paul's hit on some language here that's familiar to them. Right away, they hear the grumbling and complaining and they're like, oh, we've heard of that before. That seems to be a fixture in our history of grumbling and complaining against God. But what did the grumbling, what did that chronic ongoing displeasure end up looking like? It looked like mistrust. It, looked like it ended up working out in idolatry, right? Um, the complaining, it's not just merely, you know, I don't want to go to bed or whining. I don't want to do my homework. Uh, it's not just complaining. Uh, the complaint, it's an interesting word uh, that means to dialogue with yourself. And uh, I think there's some interesting things we can consider about this. He says, don't, don't let your life be marked by ongoing displeasure. And, uh, and the word there, dialogusman, you, you can hear the word dialogue in it, dialogusman, this kind of circular reasoning within yourself that just kind of keeps on festering and boiling and festering. And, and Paul says, don't, don't let this mark your life. Why would, he, why would he go there and talk about that? Because he's recalling that the children of Israel have done this before. The people of God have done this before. You get stuck in your own prejudices. You get stuck in your own complaint. You're living in complaint. And the reason you're living in complaint is because it's circular reasoning, this thing about your life that isn't the way you want it. Think about the children of God when they were grumbling and complaining. God had done tremendous miracles and yet they landed here because they were kind of like, you know, where is God? Why is this happening to me? Why? I mean, if God is loving and good, then why am I going through this? And the guy writing it is in prison in Rome going, hey, don't get into like inner bubbling dialogue with when things can be terrible. Don't let that end up marking your life. He's calling them out of away from that and into something else. Because when, when the children of God, historically speaking, you know, they doubted God's goodness and then they doubted his provision, they doubted his wisdom, and they eventually they doubted his presence. And then where it led every single time was, uh, you know, like this depressing playlist on repeat. They worshiped other gods. So Paul is calling the church, hey, listen, guys, God is going to do work in you. He's going to do it by his power. So you've got to work this thing out with a lot of energy, the fear and trembling, the excitement of what Christ has done. So you've got to keep going back and marveling at the goodness of the gospel and allow it to do like a deep work. He's calling, a, he's, you know, what's the purpose of this instruction? Because you see where the text goes is he wants them to be these shining lights in the world, this shining light uh, in, in a generation uh, that, that, that uh, very much needs the grace of God. And this is true of you and I by extension. Right? Don't live uh, in this ongoing displeasure. The surrounding culture is an ongoing displeasure. Don't live with this sort of circular reasoning that keeps bubbling around inside you and frustrating you and making you sort of an angry cynic. The culture around you is bubbling around in their circular... Do you see why, where he goes here? Because he, he describes the, gener, the, the surrounding generation as crooked and twisted. It's not just, you know, throwing rocks. For those of you who may be exploring Christian faith and uh, you're thinking to yourself, boy, this is why I have a problem with Christianity. It just it sounds so self-righteous. They sound like, oh my goodness, the Christians are just so self-righteous. Look at us, we're the crooked and twisted ones. 
I'm going to just give you an image of why that language is used. When something gets crooked and twisted, and by the way, the children of God were described that way in Deuteronomy 32. So it's when the, when the children of God grumbled and complained and they let that set root in their life and they chased after other things, Deuteronomy 32 says, oh, you've become crooked and twisted. And it, it's a way of describing something that gets dehydrated. So when something gets dehydrated, it's like this gnarly branch that's become crooked and twisted because there's no more life flowing into it. It dried up. And the, the image is that, you know, God is the source of life, the one that hydrates the soul. Right? Jesus said things like, you know, I, I am uh, living water. The one, I give living water. The one who drinks from me will never thirst again. But to turn from the God of life and to make something else your God of life, to turn from Jesus and find some other small thing and make it Jesus, it leads into your soul being dehydrated and essentially becoming crooked and twisted. So yes, there are implications to uh, you know, morals that are crooked and twisted because they are not aligned with God's morality. Or conversations you can have about something in our culture that is crooked and twisted because it is deviant from the way that God sees things. Right? God being orthodox and perfectly straight and wise and the wisdom of God's law being faithful guidance for our life. That is true. But I want you to think about your soul, not just the externals. Like, oh, I'm getting it right and my neighbor's getting it wrong and we're in a morality game. I'm hydrated. And when I get dehydrated and I get crooked, like you all get crooked at some point when you have that week, that moment, that day, when your soul gets oriented around the wrong thing and it's exhausting and dehydrating, we have a way back into hydration (laughs) by the presence of God, His grace, the indwelling power of the Spirit. And so we're being called now uh, uh, to not uh, do what the rest of the... uh, crooked and twisted generation is doing and we're called to shine as light to be those who would uh, be a, a source of of hope by preaching the gospel by being bold to point to jesus so that we're not just essentially regurgitating the same arguments and complaints and grumblings of the culture which these last two years has been particularly difficult to do but we're being called out of this i'm not just going to be an echo I'm going to be this voice, and it's not because I'm better than my neighbor. It's because, by God's grace, I'm hydrated. And I want to shine as a light in the world. And how do we shine as the light in the world? The text says we're holding fast to the word of life. We're constantly revisiting the gospel. You know, it will soothe your soul and hydrate your soul when you stop to reflect on it. And I close with this. You know, by God's grace, we stand before him blameless and innocent. That's the call, that you'd be blameless and innocent. By God's grace, we are declared that in Jesus. No, that's not our day-to-day experience that we're walking out blamelessness and innocence, but we're declared that by the grace of Jesus. That's the promise of salvation. And by God's grace, His Spirit indwells us. He works in you, church. He works in you, giving you the power to to do the renewal. Those areas of your life where you say, I wish... I could transform it. I'm tired and exhausted of still circling around uh, in this weakness, this frustration, this hurt. Good news. It's not by your willpower. As you rest in the gospel, as you continually turn to God and allow him to nourish and hydrate your soul, he works in you through the Spirit's power. And by God's grace, we go out into this crooked and twisted world. 
Those who are dehydrated from trying to satisfy the deepest longings in their soul with small and temporal and passing things. And we do it in a spirit of humility. And we do it in boldness. And we proclaim the good news of God who so loved the world, he came to rehydrate our souls. Who gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Christ the king, the one who came to give abundant life. It's God who works in us, church. May we do this, holding fast to these words of life. Let's pray.